0: Today's episode is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn a 5.1% annual percentage yield with a high yield cash account. And while we can't say for certain that's the highest interest rate out there, we can say that at the time of this recording, that's higher than Robinhood, higher than SoFi, Marcus, Wealthfront, higher rate than Betterment, Capital One, Ally, Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo. think you get the point here. If you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. Full disclosures and terms and conditions can be found in the podcast description, U.S. members only. This is Business Breakdowns. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts, podcast guests, their employers or affiliates may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Matt Russell, and today we are breaking down the giant alternative asset manager, Brookfield. Today, Brookfield boasts $750 billion in assets under management. And it's a global footprint that includes many noteworthy office buildings and key infrastructure assets. To break down Brookfield, I'm joined by Nima Shayeg from Rumi Capital Partners. We cover Brookfield's powerful history, the evolutionary changes in the operating structure, and what separates Brookfield from other big managers. We started with Blackstone. We covered Vanguard. And now we hope you enjoy this breakdown of Brookfield. Nima, thanks for joining us on Business Breakdowns. Yeah, thank you for having me. So the business today, Brookfield, has a truly enormous footprint across the globe, but I'm still not sure that it actually has the name recognition that matches that asset footprint. So maybe we could just start off by bringing Brookfield's scale to life a little bit about what they do, how they operate, and how big they really are.
1: Sure. So Brookfield is one of the largest alternative investment firms in the world, with around $400 billion in fee-bearing assets under management. This is one of the premier asset management franchises globally with a multi-decade track record of compounding value on behalf of both shareholders and clients. Brookfield's expertise spans some of the most scalable global asset classes, namely real estate, infrastructure, energy, private equity, credit, and also insurance is increasingly becoming very meaningful. It has been around seven years or almost seven years that I've been involved with Brookfield, both currently at Rumi and previously at SQ Advisors. And to your point, I've always found it interesting that the company and its people have managed to maintain a reasonably low profile compared with some of their peers, despite being one of the largest investment firms in the world. And despite having compounded total returns for shareholders at around 19% per annum for the last 20 years, compared to something like 10 for the market the S&P. Brookfield today can simplistically be thought of as the amalgam of two primary pillars of value, a balance sheet of principal investments and an asset management fee stream. Brookfield's balance sheet has accumulated and compounded over a few decades. To give you a sense for scale, this is a roughly 45 or $50 billion equity portfolio, which upstreams something like 2 and a half or $3 billion of cash to the Brookfield parent annually. These principal investments are made up predominantly of long-duration, inflation-protected assets around the world. These include trophy commercial real estate complexes like London's Canary Wharf, Brookfield Place, New York, Alamoana Center, in Honolulu, in addition to many others, including a collection of renewable power generation plants like hydro and wind, electricity transmission lines, natural gas pipelines, railroads, telecom towers. Not to mention a private equity portfolio of a couple dozen operating companies.
0: And are these assets they own outright or are they owning these through fund structures?
1: Brookfield typically does not own most of these assets directly, but instead its balance sheet owns stakes in perpetual limited partnerships, which in turn own the underlying assets. These partnerships file distinct financials, providing unit holders with asset level transparency, and they also often trade freely on the open market. So these include Brookfield Infrastructure, Brookfield Renewable, Brookfield Business Partners, as well as Brookfield Property Group. The Brookfield parent company balance sheet will often own large stakes in these vehicles, giving it the exposure to the underlying cash flows. The second pillar of Brookfield's business is a highly profitable scaled asset management franchise, supported by 400 billion in fee-bearing capital, This asset management business has been growing rapidly for more than 20 years. Brookfield earns fees for managing assets on behalf of third parties like sovereign wealth funds, pension funds, high net worth investors, and everything else in between. Its base of fee-bearing capital is unusually long-term in nature, which gives investors significant predictability around the firm's earnings power. More specifically, it manages traditional private funds that are 10 or 12 years in duration, but it also manages its perpetual vehicles, the limited partnerships that I mentioned before, which represent permanent capital. So the result is a long-term recurring management fee stream, which today is something like $2 billion of cash flow annualized. And that's not even accounting for the carried interest it is beginning to realize from its large private funds. I would say in sum, one way of framing Brookfield is as a combination of a roughly 45 to $50 billion balance sheet, net of debt, plus a rapidly growing $2 billion annuity-like fee stream, and then carried interest, which is likely to approach 2 and a half or $3 billion per annum in its own right.
0: You uh, set up the entire conversation very nicely there. I think I have a long list of things to pull on. But one of the earlier things you mentioned in that answer was the low-profile nature of the management team. And I think with alternative managers, you typically have a key player like a Steve Schwartzman with Blackstone, who and what drove Brookfield to its scale today?
1: The earliest roots can be traced back more than a century. Initially, as an owner-operator of infrastructure and utility assets in Brazil, I think it was around the late 50s, early 60s, that Edgar and Peter Bromfman formed a vehicle to invest their inheritances. Edgar and Peter were the nephews of Samuel Bronfman, who was largely responsible for building the Seagram Liquor Empire. Over the course of a few decades, and with the help of a young accountant named Jack Cockwell, that investment vehicle developed into a sprawling conglomerate with hundreds of pieces spanning real estate, mining, Timberland, hydroelectric power, and even things like Labatt Beer and the Toronto Blue Jays. The firm evolved into a Canadian holding company called Brasscan, which at the time was among the largest companies in Canada. Ultimately, much of Brookfield's ethos and culture can be traced back to this original heritage as a principal investor first, focused on compounding its own balance sheet equity by investing in real assets globally. Now, by the early 1990s, Braskin found itself over-levered and caught flat-footed in a real estate recession, prompting a balance sheet restructuring and sale of assets. Bruce Flatt, Brookfield's longtime exceptional CEO joined Brasscan around the time all of this was unfolding. I believe he was in his mid-20s at the time and basically had a front row seat to all of this. They eventually got through it, but that traumatic episode, I believe, left a lasting imprint on the psychology of the firm, which seems to continue influencing its investment approach today. So Flat did a few things when he became CEO in 2002 he's presided over wonderful results over 20 years and he's largely responsible for a few developments which helped build the firm into what it is today. So one of the first things he did was he began divesting Brookfield of more cyclical commodity related investments like mining. I recall Flat once telling me that he believed mining was fine if you wanted to trade but it's not great if you're interested in compounding returns on capital over time. The next thing he did was He initiated a multi-year process of lifting off Brookfield's balance sheet assets into a handful of perpetual limited partnerships. Today, Brookfield's balance sheet is by and large comprised of several stakes in these vehicles, many of which are publicly traded. These perpetual vehicles provide permanent capital, as well as a novel form of financing the business. Today, the majority of any leverage that Brookfield employs is asset-specific, non-recourse to the parent. And arguably, the most impactful initiative that he spearheaded was incubating and scaling an asset management business that over 20 years has become one of the largest in the world with $400 billion in fee-bearing capital. 20 years ago, the firm had something like $3 billion in AUM, and so they've scaled it by hundreds of times, and the runway for growth from here seems reasonably open-ended. While this business is obviously significant in its own right, One way of framing it is that it really represents a highly efficient form of financing or a kind of float, which leverages Brookfield's own returns on equity. Can you talk a bit
0: about what differentiates Brookfield from some of the large alternative managers out there that most of our listeners know of and are aware of? What are the differentiating factors between Brookfield and those other players in the market?
1: The first thing I would point to is the sheer size of the company's balance sheet which is meaningfully larger than its peers. Some of the other alternatives managers have taken a capital-light approach with their balance sheets, largely distributing fee-related earnings and carry to shareholders. In Brookfield's case, I believe there exists a valuable and highly symbiotic relationship between its balance sheet and the asset manager across a number of dimensions. So first, Brookfield's capital structure really facilitates the firm's reinvestment of earnings. Brookfield's areas of competency represent an unusually broad opportunity set to deploy and then redeploy capital on behalf of shareholders and clients. As a few examples, you know, it has a long history of profitably developing greenfield projects at attractive yields on cost. It can opportunistically issue or repurchase the equity of the parent or those of its limited partnerships. During times of distress, I've seen it can quickly accumulate large stakes in. The public securities of related companies, and that has sometimes preceded an eventual take private. It also has a history of acquiring assets out of a complex bankruptcy, like in the case of Westinghouse a few years ago. All of these different levers provide Brookfield with a broad swath of outlets to reinvest the substantial cash flows thrown off by the business. And reinvesting cash at attractive incremental returns over time has really been the driver behind its compounding record over time. The second thing that I would point to that differentiates Brookfield is that it came to the asset management business first as a principal investor. That lineage has created a unique degree of alignment across its ecosystem. Brookfield truly eats its own cooking because that's how the business was started. And this is rare in a world where investment funds frequently allow the general partner to do well, regardless of client outcomes. And so for one, Brookfield Management has owned around 20% of the parent company for a couple decades. Today, that collective stake is worth something like $15 billion. And this is a close-knit, long-tenured management team that has executed together across cycles for several decades. And I can't really recall many partner-level managers leaving the company. Brookfield's compensation philosophy is another example of this and I think very different from most other large investment firms in my experience. It has always, even in the very early days, been lighter on base cash salary and more heavily weighted toward long-term equity ownership. This seems to self-select a different kind of person to the company and reinforces a culture focused on wealth creation over the longer term. And it also seems to self-select out people looking for something different. So this culture of partnership also extends to the company's relationships with its various capital providers, for example, with its large institutional clients. The Brookfield Perpetual Partnerships are frequently the largest co-investor in the flagship funds that it manages for institutions. For example, BAM recently raised $21 billion on a first close for its fifth flagship infrastructure fund. Brookfield's affiliated infrastructure vehicle will likely co-invest Five or six billion alongside LPs. So, undoubtedly, this alignment over the last couple of decades has helped accelerate Brookfield's fundraising, which in turn provides the firm with additional earnings power that it can reinvest through the balance sheet for the benefit of owners.
0: You mentioned that compensation strategy. Are employees basically given ownership rights at the BAM level, at the equity level, or are they also getting ownership at the fund level?
1: investment professionals typically have a 30% interest in the carried interest of a flagship private fund. And the Brookfield parent keeps 70% of the realized carried interest. And most of the senior people are exclusively compensated in some form of Brookfield parent equity. And junior people, as you increasingly move up the organization, the equity component is significantly weighted towards Brookfield equity. These asset
0: managed businesses are interesting as they have unique stakeholders where you typically have the shareholders and the employees and the management teams, and you kind of introduce another layer when you operate institutional funds where you also have those funds and those stakeholders, investors in those funds, which are slightly different than the parent level with Brookfield. Has there been anything unique about managing that relative to some of the other alternative managers out there?
1: I would hesitate to compare it with the approach to the typical financial investor in private markets or even infrastructure. For one, the way that Brookfield invests is highly operational and requires tremendous scale to do successfully you could probably count on one hand the number of firms that can quickly allocate several billion towards an equity check and then go and pull together another 5, 10 plus billion in non-recourse financing to buy a pipeline in South America from a government. And then there are even fewer that have the local relationships and operating personnel to go and run it properly and grow the cash flows over time. The other thing I'd say is that Brookfield has some inherent contrarian gene in its approach. Flat once remarked to me that transactions they made in 2009 really set up the next 15 years. That sort of sentiment really permeates through Brookfield's history over time. Instead of being the one fire selling assets during a recession, like in the early 90s, over the last 25 or 30 years, Brookfield has assumed the role on the other side of the table as the buyer during periods like that. In the wake of 9-11, they took advantage of a depressed real estate market in lower Manhattan to build out what is now a trophy complex in Brookfield Place, New York. In 2009, they recapitalized general growth out of bankruptcy. They also bought Australia's Babcock and Brown, which had run into trouble as well. Many, if not most of the cornerstone assets of Brookfield's business were really assembled during crisis periods like these. So today, Brookfield is in the fortunate position of again having plenty of dry powder to get aggressive as opportunities warrant. And the Brookfield ecosystem has something like 120, 125 billion in liquidity, which is a combination of cash, credit facilities, and uncalled fund commitments, not to mention plenty of potential co investment from its major clients. I don't typically take macro perspectives. But to the extent that the economy might be heading into a downturn, I think it bodes well for Brookfield's contrarian approach.
0: And they seem to be great buyers in periods of stress. There's also something unique about the ability to deploy the amount of capital that they have on the balance sheet and getting Mm -hmm. deals at a certain size limits the buyer set and the firms that can actually execute on something of that size. So there's something to be said for that as well. There's, I think a diversified approach to how they're investing from an asset perspective. How would you view their reputation across the board? I think about them associated with real estate, with energy, but how do you think about the various segments of the business and what makes Brookfield Brookfield when you think about those differentiating pieces?
1: You know, as I mentioned, scale really matters. The ability to quickly put together capital required to close on an asset that is in some developing market where they've been for a few decades is difficult to do. Another thing that is unique about Brookfield's approach is that it's been very global in nature. They operate in 30 countries. And I'm not sure that there was some premeditated plan to expand globally from day one. I think the evolution beyond Brazil and Canada early on has been opportunistic and also very measured and incremental in nature. For example, when incubating a new business, there seems to exist a sort of recurring arc to the process, both geographically and from the perspective of a new vertical. The first thing you would typically see is a small amount of balance sheet capital allocated as kind of a test tube for the opportunity. Brookfield typically spends several years learning while keeping the capital at risk modest. Over time, it scales the investment as it proves out a process for generating attractive returns. Only then would you see Brookfield begin to bring in third-party capital to specific deals and then potentially launching a dedicated investment fund around it. At a later point in maturity, that scaled business might be separated or distributed out as a standalone entity, of which the parent would, of course, retain a large interest. This machine has created tremendous value over time while also avoiding getting overexposed on any individual bet. One example of this in practice might be thinking about the firm's expansion to India. From what I recall, Brookfield initially established an office in India in 2009, but it did not close a single investment until 2014. And since then, they scaled their investments, and last year Brookfield launched and listed a dedicated Indian REIT, which is trading, publicly. Fast forward to 2022, they now own something like 40 million square feet of office space, plus a couple hundred thousand telecom towers and a host of other infrastructure assets as well. And so, as a result of this incremental expansion over a few decades, Brookfield is in 30 countries and has the advantage of being able to move money around the world opportunistically as capital becomes scarce.
0: I loved during the research portion of this seeing how early they were in global investment and making some of those early investments into Brazil really stood out. And I think that phased approach you mentioned, it actually brings up a lot of other businesses I think of today that are completely outside of the asset management world. An example simple one being Uber and their phased approach to opening in new cities and having very small teams on the ground there doing a lot of the upfront work early before putting major capital to work months and months later. And yes, very different businesses, but very interesting to see how the business mindset can certainly rhyme between different industries. When you think about now the evolution of the business, again, going back to just some of the different revenue streams and where they are today from uh, asset perspective, looking at Again, the real estate, the private equity, credit, different business lines that they have. How do you think about looking at those businesses on the balance sheet, the different streams that they have, the different units that they have, and breaking those down from a perspective of an investor at the Brookfield level, thinking about the economics on those revenue streams, margin profile on fees, and different visibility into the performance of those businesses?
1: I might approach the question of Brookfield's economics by making a somewhat unconventional parallel. It seems fairly well appreciated at this point that enterprise software is a wonderful business model across a number of dimensions. Incidentally, I would say that alternative asset management shares many of these characteristics. For example, both at their cores are capital light business models characterized by long duration, high margin annuity streams. For the best software businesses, Customer lives can often be measured in 10-plus-year relationships. Likewise, in the asset management business, private funds often have contractual fee streams that span 10 or 12 years. In Brookfield's case, a large chunk of its earnings power is also derived from permanent capital vehicles. These characteristics create very long-dated and predictable revenue streams. Unlike the public markets business, which continues to see fee compression, Brookfield's offerings have experienced virtually none over time, and it is not abnormal for it to earn $1.5 and 20 on a $10, $15, 20000000000 billion fund. From a profitability perspective, mature software businesses frequently enjoy cash flow margins of 30 to 40%, and sometimes even more. Brookfield's margin on its fee-related earnings are close to 60%, and the realized carried interest it earns typically drops through at a 70% net margin with the other 30% going to the investment staff, as I mentioned. Carried interest is typically 20% of all profits once returns exceed a preferred hurdle, which is usually 5 to 9%, depending on the strategy. Both business models also enjoy significant operating leverage. Selling one more module of software typically drops through at almost pure profit. Likewise, managing another billion dollars typically does not require any additional people As a result, both businesses tend to get much more profitable as they scale. And so those are the quantitative characteristics of the economics behind the asset management business. But the characteristics that really interest me more are the qualitative ones. In both businesses, software and asset management, customer decision-making is characterized by what Richard Zeckhauser once called blame aversion, (laughs) Large institutions would generally rather allocate capital to a well-known blue-chip firm with a long track record than to a smaller, unproven firm, even if it means potentially foregoing a few points of return over time. And so that dynamic leads to an incumbency advantage for the largest, most reputable firms like Brookfield, Blackstone, KKR, etc. And similarly, in software, reputation and the ability to reference or referenceability tends to matter greatly in winning enterprise deals. This presents something of a chicken or egg problem. How do you win in the enterprise without an existing base of enterprise clients? Likewise, how do emerging investment firms raise large funds without a track record of deploying large capital? Both challenges, of course, can be overcome and they frequently are, but the point is that they take time and that time allows the economics for incumbents to remain more durable. So if you are a large company in the market for CRM, you will probably pick Salesforce. Likewise, if you are an LP looking for infrastructure exposure, you will probably give the capital to Brookfield.
0: Yeah, you don't get fired for hiring IBM. It's something that gives you a bit of a moat, especially in the short term, in the medium term. In the long term, things can change as they did with IBM, but it means something and reputation means something in this business, particularly. You referenced the management fees and the performance fees, the one and a half and the 20. Do they give a split of what percentage of revenue comes from that management fee versus what percentage is coming from the performance fee?
1: So the fee-related earnings, which is the recurring annuity-like portion of the distributable earnings, is roughly $2 billion today on an annualized basis. Fee-bearing capital has probably grown at a 30% CAGR for the last 20 years. So that's been growing nicely. The distributions from the perpetual capital that they own is probably running at something like $2.5 billion net of costs today. That's cash that's being distributed from the underlying assets that Brookfield owns pro rata interests in. And then the carried interest portion is a little bit tricky because it's fundamentally lumpy and people typically don't put a large multiple on carry because the timing of it is uncertain and it's contingent on performance.
0: Yeah, I think it's a move or acknowledgement that you're seeing across the financial industry, even with banks. Many, many years ago, the trading revenues and the big swings that you would have and the shift towards more fee-based revenues, where again, visibility is paramount for any investor. This corporate structure is complex relative to other businesses out there with a single stock that trades on an exchange.
1: There's a lot of moving parts here. How do you as an investor get comfortable with that? Because Brookfield has so much going on at any given moment between buying and selling different assets across different funds, geographies, entities, these activities happening all at once sometimes makes it challenging for observers or investors to keep track of everything. And then the required accounting rules can sometimes misrepresent or even not represent the underlying economics of the business. Some investors historically have taken that situation and used it to suggest or paint a certain picture of the business and its people. For example, three or four years ago, there was this narrative that BPY, its real estate vehicle, was unable to independently support its cash distributions to unit holders. Investors and media publications would basically take reported cash flow from the financial statements and conclude that that number was lower than the promised cash distribution. Therefore, there must be liquidity issues. And there were a whole host of what I felt were mistakes in that thinking. But those kinds of conclusions and misuses of accounting have recurred a number of times over the last decade to suggest things that, Seemed imprecise from my perspective. I'd also say that over the last five to 10 years, the amount and quality of the disclosure has increased dramatically. And the granularity with which one can drill down into individual investments, even sometimes down to the property level, is really pretty substantial at this point. The company spends a lot of time providing supplemental information for each listed issuer. And so I think it's really a matter of just taking the time to go through it with a fine tooth comb.
0: And I know there's also been some scrutiny on the ownership structure of the business, Partners Limited being that controlling owner, but they've made some changes to the ownership structure itself. Can you just give an overview on what that was, maybe why there was scrutiny and whether they've answered that scrutiny with the changes that they've made?
1: So sometimes people will bring up the ownership structure, the degree of influence that Brookfield has over the various pieces in the ecosystem. So for context, I mentioned earlier that the major personnel at Brookfield own around 20% of Brookfield equity. Part of that 20% is held in a group of entities called partners, which is owned by more than 50 of the company's top people there also exist preferential governance rights given to a handful of Brookfield's very senior leaders, including Bruce Flatt and a few others. And I would probably submit that without the same degree of influence, there could be greater pressure to succumb to shorter term forces. And additionally, I think it's really core to Brookfield's business to have the ability to reallocate and restructure assets to where they might best meet the needs of its various stakeholders and clients over the longer term. So I'd also say my portfolio is a little bit unconventional in that way, where it is overwhelmingly tilted towards firms led by what one might call a benevolent dictator, but one with significant skin in the game alongside us. Structures like this are usually outputs rather than inputs. The inputs behind them are the intentions and the culture of the people. These structures, admittedly, are probably not appropriate for the -the run-of-the-mill company out there led by agents rather than principals. But for a small minority of firms like Brookfield that are run by principals that have demonstrated a competence in stewarding our capital over many years, I'm really happy to give them my trust. And to the extent that that trust was not there, I simply just wouldn't be involved in the first place. So in my opinion... Such structures should be earned over time rather than doled out freely. But in the case of Brookfield, I do believe the ownership arrangement has been earned over 25 years.
0: Is one way to think of this similar to a Zuckerberg with his Facebook shares where he has super shares essentially in terms of controlling interest? Is there much different in terms of some of the tech founders and the controlling interest that they have in their businesses relative to what's going on at Brookfield?
1: Yeah. Ultimately, it is structured to have preferential governance rights votes at the various entities in order to appoint directors and have a certain control over the ecosystem in order to run it for the long run. You
0: mentioned some of the major changes to the business were moving things outside of just direct ownership into having several different structures I imagine that's part of a broader change in terms of thinking about the capital structure and optimizing the capital structure. How do they think about debt specifically? I think we've seen with some other businesses that try to optimize for cost of capital through using various different entities. The one thing that they can run into is issues with being over levered and having too much leverage, not just at the asset level, but at intermediate entities, and even at the parent level. How does Brookfield approach this? And What's the comfort in terms of proper leverage ratios, or what do they manage towards to make sure that you don't get in over their skis here?
1: I think there is a modest amount of debt residing at various layers throughout the Brookfield ecosystem. The vast majority of the debt is asset-specific and non-recourse in nature to the various corporate holdings. In my opinion, this prudence with respect to financing was one of the key learnings for the organization following its challenges in the early 90s. I can try to think through a simplified example to illustrate the framework of their capital structure. So, At the bottom level, you might have an electricity transmission line or a toll road that is characterized by long duration cash flows associated with it. That asset would likely be levered appropriately in relation to the earnings power it produces. The BIP limited partnership would typically own the equity tranche of an asset like that. As such, the balance sheet of BIP would simply be a collection of these various equity stakes, plus also some LP co-investments in Brookfield's funds. Then there might be a modest amount of debt at the BIP corporate level, which would be recourse to BIP, but non-recourse to the Brookfield parent. This recourse debt is typically termed out for many years, It is low cost and mostly fixed rate, and generally is quite modest as a percentage of total capitalization. The Brookfield parent would then own the partnership units in each of these vehicles. The equity valuation of those units would, of course, be net of any corporate level recourse debt. And luckily, these units frequently are publicly traded, and therefore, it is pretty straightforward to determine how much of the equity interest accrues to the parent. And finally, at the parent company level, there would similarly be a modest amount of debt relative to the cash flows that are being upstreamed to it between the distributions from the principal investments as well as asset management earnings power. So, just to put numbers around this at the parent level, there is something like 11 billion of debt at the Brookfield parent level, plus 4 billion of perpetual preferreds against around 60 billion of. Principal equity investments, which are throwing off two or three billion of cash distributions, plus another two billion of fee related earnings before the benefit of carry. And so it is true that there exists debt at various levels, but I think the Brookfield Capital Markets Group has pretty thoughtfully structured each layer, and the disclosures around determining the prudence of the structure is evident in each of the entities.
0: And with that in mind, How do they approach the capital allocation strategy? It's obviously, as you mentioned, different from other alternative managers who tend to rely on dividends and yield in terms of attracting investors. What does it look like? How opportunistic are they with buybacks? Have they paid dividends historically? Is there some type of opportunistic dividends that you've seen over time? And anything beyond reinvestment that they've done in the past? How do you think about their approach to capital allocation?
1: Brookfield has not historically been an overly aggressive repurchaser of its own stock. The approach to buybacks has been more opportunistic over time. If I remember correctly, they did step up the buyback during the 2008 downturn. But ultimately, this business has had ample opportunity to reinvest internally within its various businesses. Even if we think back to the COVID-related price declines in early 2020, it's true that BAM stock got pretty cheap, but the parent company decided that BPY, its real estate vehicle, was arguably even cheaper. I remember at one point during March or April 2020, BPY was trading at a 17 or 18% current dividend yield. So these activities speak to the various levers that the parent has at its disposal to create value when it sees a dislocation anywhere in the ecosystem. And I think generally, this is a management team that is constantly weighing the highest and best use for excess cash. And certainly there exists some price where a share repurchase is a higher returning investment compared to any of these alternatives. But given that this is a company with a call it mid-teens baseline opportunity cost, within its various businesses, share repurchases at the parent company level are up against a pretty high bar. Now, that being said, Brookfield is going to see pretty meaningful cash flows over the next five years. And it would not surprise me to see buybacks become a larger percentage of reinvested capital over time. As I said, the primary driver historically and going forward will continue to be reinvesting the free cash into the existing assets, the private funds, the listed issuers. All of the entities pay a dividend to varying degrees, whether it's the listed perpetual partnerships, the upcoming spinoff, the parent company, etc. That being said, there are also a number of newer seedlings that Brookfield is expanding into. One that is pretty notable and seems to have a long runway for growth is the reinsurance business. Brookfield has basically started to buy block annuities, taking the capital and looking to earn a levered equity spread using its various investment strategies. For example, in credit, using Oak Tree's expertise, that business could grow to become a meaningful contributor over time and deliver more free cash to be reinvested. Another business that is quite interesting is the burgeoning transition strategy. This draws from Brookfield's existing experience in the renewables business and also benefits from this trend towards impact investing. So last year, Brookfield raised $15 billion on a first fund dedicated to transition investing and that is likely to grow over time. There are other growth drivers like the company's recent infrastructure partnership with Intel, where it will put up $16 of capital towards Intel Fab in Arizona. My sense is that the majority of this capital will come from lenders, allowing Brookfield to earn a pretty attractive equity return on its portion of the investment it seems likely more deals like this could pop up over time where Brookfield is partnering with corporate issuers. And lastly, I think Brookfield has a big opportunity to penetrate the high net worth channel with some of its investment offerings. This has been a market segment that historically has not been well represented by alternatives and the potential to offer core funds like infrastructure or Brookfield's REIT has a lot of potential to take market share.
0: And with that in mind, how do you think about evaluating this as a business from a shareholder perspective, whether it's valuation or the metrics or KPIs that you're looking at? What's most important to see growing? Is it distributable cash flow growth? Is it some type of earnings measurement? What are the things you're looking at when making the evaluation?
1: The cleanest metric is probably what they call DE, which is distributable earnings. And distributable earnings is essentially a function of all of the cash that is being generated by the business. And so at the parent company level, that includes the distributions, the dividends that it's receiving from its various perpetual partnerships, as well as all of the earnings power from the asset management business, which includes fee-related earnings, as well as realized carry. And when you sum all of that up, that is really the cash that is being generated that Brookfield can reinvest through the corporate level and continue to compound returns over time. So that number, assessing that number, the growth of DE per share is probably the most important thing to monitor for this business. And is there a multiple
0: that you would use in relation to that? Is it as simple as using the market cap of... Brookfield and comparing it to a distributable earnings number, just to think about how it would be valued from an outsider's perspective?
1: There are many ways to do it. I think one way that I've historically thought about it was to take the market value of the principal investments that Brookfield owns on balance sheet and strip that out of the market cap in order to determine what the asset management stub is effectively trading for. And you could then compare the earnings power of the asset manager, both fee related earnings and target annualized carry to that stub to see a yield that one is paying for the asset management business in isolation. I would mention that just for context, Brookfield will soon be spinning off a 25% interest in the asset management business and distributing that 25% interest to shareholders. Once the transaction is done, the existing parent company will be renamed Brookfield Corporation, and the asset management business will fittingly be renamed Brookfield Asset Management. Brookfield Corporation will retain a 75% interest in the asset management business. The one nuance that I should point out, not to get too in the weeds, is that the way carry will be shared between the two companies is a little bit tricky, as it is not quite 75 25 Going forward, Brookfield Corporation will keep all carry on existing funds. Future funds will split carried interest two-thirds to the asset management business, one-third to the corporation. For the next few years, most of the realized carry will stay with the corporation. And therefore, the cash distribution of the asset manager, this spinoff, will simply be a function of an annuity-like fee-related earnings stream. The
0: spinoff now gives investors an opportunity to essentially own a yield vehicle. Is that the right way to think about it? Where if you're at the new Brookfield Corporation, you're essentially trusting in management's capital allocation ability. If you're owning the asset management stub, that tends to be a little bit more correlated to the yield that it's spitting out. Is that the right framework?
1: From my perspective, this transaction is really more form over substance. But it does accomplish a few things. The first thing it does is that it spotlights the value that has been created over the last two decades in building out this business. As I was mentioning before, when you strip out the balance sheet, principal investments, you can get an implied valuation. But what the spin off is doing is it's really making explicit the value of the asset management stuff. If there happens to be a discount anywhere in the ecosystem, having all of these entities trading publicly will make that very explicit and clear and management can do things in order to realize that value. To the extent that the asset manager trades properly, they will have a dedicated currency with a significant cash dividend to continue expanding the asset management platform inorganically. A few years ago, they partnered with Oaktree Tree and bought a little more than 60% of the company in exchange for cash and Brookfield stock. But the Brookfield stock they traded, historically, is not just an asset management business. It also, of course, includes exposure to the $50 billion portfolio of real estate infrastructure, etc. And so that stock swap was not really like for like, this spinoff will give them a like for like security that should be more attractive to potential sellers. So one can envision a scenario where the spinoff trades properly and Brookfield can either use it as a currency or if the corporation trades at a big discount to the implied value of the asset manager and the other holdings, it could redirect cash flow to repurchasing the parent company shares in order to create value that way. From my perspective, the transaction is really more form over substance, but it does provide another tool, another lever to add into all of the other levers that the business has to create value for owners. And we've definitely
0: seen consolidation with alternative managers, quite a few mergers over the past couple of years. I'm curious, one, if that's a stated strategy for Brookfield to continue to explore after Oak Tree, if you would expect that that's what they use that vehicle for. And there's a lot of opportunity there. And the second part of the question is, what do you think of as the main benefits to having a merger of alternative managers? Are there many synergies that exist when consolidating in another alternative manager under the Brookfield umbrella?
1: I would say that yes, there should be opportunity to continue expanding the asset manager via acquisition. But I'd also say that it will likely be a rare occurrence for Brookfield to issue this valuable asset management business, just given the characteristics, the growth runway, the cash distribution profile. 80% of the fee-bearing capital of the spinoff is going to be either permanent capital or 10 to 12 years in a private fund. I don't think they will give that up likely, but I do think could there be potential opportunities to expand geographically? Could there be other verticals? Do they want to expand more into technology or add distribution capabilities? I think all of these potential areas there is optionality for Brookfield to explore.
0: Yeah, there's an interesting parallel here with Berkshire and how they tend to operate and how they tend to think about shareholder capital. And I think how shareholders tend to think about their capital sitting within Berkshire and who's investing it, how it's being invested and thinking about it opportunistically. Very interesting parallels there. I want to move on a bit to some of the dynamics in the market today and what could exist as risks to the business. First off is the biggest impact to the market these days, interest rates. How does interest rates or how do interest rates impact a business where fees are in place, you have these dynamics where you certainly have inflation occurring across the globe? How does that impact an asset manager like Brookfield?
1: I would just say that to the extent interest rates rise meaningfully in response, for example, to persistent inflation, that can, of course impact the fair value of Brookfield's various holdings. Discount rates and cap rates rising is not great for the present value of future earnings power for any cash producing asset, Brookfield's included. The nice thing about the areas where Brookfield plays is that the real earnings power in such an environment is likely to be durable because the underlying assets enjoy an inherent inflation protection. Modest inflation is actually beneficial for a company like this, As replacement costs rise and rents are adjusted, revenues have CPI escalators in many cases. Now, the other potential impact of rising interest rates could be to reduce on the margin the attractiveness of Brookfield's investment products from an opportunity cost perspective to the client. If fixed income begins to offer much more enticing yields, perhaps there is some reallocation among institutional portfolios which in turn maybe impacts the growth of Brookfield's fundraising. Again, this is on the margin. I don't think we're quite there yet, as the spread of returns between many of Brookfield's strategies is still well in excess of prevailing interest rates. Many of Brookfield's flagship funds target annualized returns of anywhere between low double digits to 20%. Maybe some of the credit products are in the high single digits, but in any case, the spread is still noteworthy. Another way of thinking about this is that there exists something of a natural hedge between the balance sheet and the asset management side of things. Environments where yields are higher frequently coincide with lower valuations. And while that may hurt Brookfield's holdings temporarily, it would also make for a more attractive environment for Brookfield to be deploying its cash flows. Likewise, in environments where rates are lower and returns have been stronger, fundraising tends to come easier.
0: Yeah, there's an interesting hedged dynamic there where through the cycle, they should have opportunities that exist one way or another. I'm curious, just in terms of how the market perceives the stock, we try to avoid too much about valuation on the podcast. But when I think about, again, other alternative managers, there's a distribution element. And what we tend to see with interest rates rising is these high dividend paying stocks, usually tend to sell off because the yield that you were getting, let's say it was 5%, looks a lot less attractive when you can get a risk-free at 5%. Does that impact Brookfield as much? curious how correlated they are to the rest of the group in that sense.
1: I'm not sure it's any more or less correlated than any other risk asset. One point that seems to be frequently discussed is Brookfield's exposure to commercial real estate. As of the third quarter, Brookfield held around $30 billion of real estate equity exposure on its balance sheet. And that is at the company's IFRS marks on individual assets. So in light of rising interest rates and a portfolio of commercial offices and retail malls that many fear have lost relevance in 2022, some will conclude that Brookfield's IFRS mark deserves a meaningful haircut. And I think the devil is really in the details The truth is that there is some variance of quality with these assets, but the majority of the value is in a couple dozen trophy assets, which enjoy very long leases, in some cases, 15 plus years. And so reasonable people can debate about where the fair value cap rate should be in the current environment for some of the assets. But ultimately, there will be substantial cash flows being distributed to the parent company from these properties. And if you're really peeling back the onion on some of the real estate exposure I think it's worth noting that of the 30 billion of equity value that Brookfield marks probably 8 9 10 billion of it is just Brookfield's co-investment in the real estate private funds and it's worth noting that that co-investment in those funds is typically not nearly as exposed to office or retail as the core balance sheet assets that it owns in terms of large office complexes and malls.
0: So, we hit on interest rates, we hit on the dynamics within commercial real estate. Are there any other risks that you think we're missing that are obvious for this business?
1: While interest rates and real estate exposure seem to be kind of the big headline risks that many people are discussing currently, I would just say that the risk that I probably spend more time thinking about is reputational. So much of the essence of Brookfield's business hinges upon a long-term trust that it has cultivated with large capital providers and clients, between lenders and institutional investors and the third-party unit holders of the perpetual vehicles. There can sometimes exist conflicts and transactions between Brookfield's entities and other clients that it manages capital for. But I do think that Brookfield is well aware of the strategic importance of serving clients well, and it is likely a top priority for them to handle this thoughtfully, as really the cornerstone of the business is to maintain good relations with the various capital providers. That risk is something that is there, but well understood by the top people at Brookfield.
0: And Nima, we'd like to close these conversations with the lessons that we can share with investors and other business operators. What are the major lessons from your research of Brookfield over the years?
1: I think one big lesson for me in observing BAM over time is that if you have a business with a long duration runway to reinvest capital at attractive returns, that can really bail you out over the long term. I can't think of really any periods over the last decade where Brookfield was excessively overvalued. It has always traded a bit below where I thought it should when compared to its future prospects. But even despite never getting full credit from the market, from a valuation perspective, the stock has compounded really nicely over time. And that is because the business compounding over a sufficiently long period has more than overwhelmed any near-term valuation.
0: Well, Nima, this has been an excellent conversation. Thank you again for joining us. Thank you so much for having me.